Acts chapter 4, continuing our study in the book of Acts. Lord willing, we'll be, we'll be getting to one of, the most, uh, one of the most significant, I think, verses in the, in the Bible, especially as it relates to salvation in verse 12. We'll see that in just a little bit, but I want to read verses 1 through 12 in the book of Acts chapter 4. The Bible says in verse 1, And as they spake unto the people, they being Peter and John, who were speaking to the people, that is, evangelizing, preaching the gospel in the temple after having healed the man who was lame in chapter 3, as they spake unto the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved, that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders." which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word here. Thank you for this account that you chose to to use Luke to write, to give us the the account of Peter's, uh, his plea before the, uh, the, the council here. Thank you for what's written in it. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the the grace and the power of your spirit among us. Thank you, Lord, for our church. Thank you, especially for the gospel. Lord, none of us would be here if it had not been for that gospel, what you did for us, your blood shed for us, for our sins, bearing our burdens, bearing our transgressions, and then rising again the third day from the dead. Lord, We pray to you because you are alive and because you can hear and you can act. And so, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon our service here tonight. We pray that each and every person's heart would be open and that you would speak to each and every person by your Spirit as well. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now, as we we first started on on Wednesday in chapter 4, we see that uh, Peter and John are arrested by this, uh, the Sadducees, of course. The Sadducees were, were uh, unlike the Pharisees. They were similar to the Pharisees in that they were the rulers of the people of Israel. 
but they were, they were different than the Pharisees because the Sadducees were what the equivalent of a liberal, uh, a liberal theological group. The Pharisees were very conservative theologically, and the Sadducees were liberal theologically. In other words, the Sadducees did not believe the Bible. They were the, the priestly class at this time, which is funny because they were the priestly class, but they did not believe the Bible, which is amazing. But anyhow, that, that exists to our day, does it not? And the Sadducees, they did not believe in angels. They did not believe in, in devils. They didn't believe in the, basically in the spiritual world at all. And one of the things that really, that really rubbed them the wrong way was Peter and John preaching about the resurrection from the dead because they had to. Because their Savior, our Savior, had risen from the dead. And so they're just preaching the truth. And the Sadducees, of course, did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. So they basically believed that when you died, that was, that was it. That was it. There was no resurrection. And so what did they do? They laid hands on them. They arrested them. And verse 3 says, They laid hands on them and put them in, in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. So it was evening already. What's interesting, though, is this lame man, if you look back at chapter 3, now this man has just been healed. This man has really probably just heard about Jesus. So don't get those two confused. I'll say more about this in a second, but his body was healed, but the question of his soul was a different question. We have to understand that. Yesterday we're out visiting, uh, we're out knocking on some doors, and I was with uh, Brother Mark. And uh, we knocked on this fellow's door. And poor, I mean, the poor man, uh, he had a car accident when he was like, when he was like, what, was it eight years old or something like that? He had, and after that, and he was seriously injured. And after that, he had two other major car accidents in which people perished. People died. Here he is. He talked about his spleen had ruptured and meniscus this and broken that. I mean, it was three different car accidents. But again, the danger, now this man seemed to, seemed to understand this, but the danger is to assume that because God spared him from these physical uh, accidents and problems, that somehow his soul was saved. But these are two different questions. Two different questions. But we know this man not only had his body healed, but his soul was healed too, because in, in uh, verse number verse 11 of chapter 3 says, And as the lame man which was healed held... Peter and John. So not only was he healed, he, he stopped and hung around and he listened. And I think you could, you could argue, although the scripture doesn't plainly say it, that he actually believed in Christ at some point after that. But here back in chapter 4, they're put in, they're put in jail. They're put in hold for preaching. And apparently the layman is among them. Now it's one thing if Peter and John who've been walking with Jesus and they're you know, Bible, uh, they're, they're very experienced. You know, they've experienced persecution now. And they have, uh, of course, this is the first instance of persecution in the book of Acts, we know. But, but they knew it was coming, or they should have known. And, you know, they, they have developed in their faith. But this lame man hasn't. But yet here in verse number, uh, let's look at it, verse number 14, look what it says. And beholding the, the council now, the man which was healed standing with them. They could say nothing against it. So apparently it, it seems that they arrested Peter, John, and the lame man because the lame man was attached to him, the man who was healed, and they put them all in prison. Here he is, first day trusting Christ. This fantastic thing's happening. He's, he's an older man. He's above 40 years old. He's been healed. First thing that happens, thrown in jail. 
And he wasn't even preaching. He was just a, a benefactor, a, a beneficiary rather, not a benefactor, a beneficiary of what the Lord had done in his life as a, as a sign, as a, as a verification and confirmation of the word that Peter's preaching. Here he is in jail. Verse 4. So now Peter and John are in jail. But you see that first word in verse 4, what's it say? It says, how be it. You know what that means? It's not a word we use a whole lot. In fact, if you use that word, somebody would probably look at you cockeyed because they don't know what you're talking about. The word how be it, it means despite the fact or though that's the case. So I'll read it, I'll read it just so we can understand it. They laid hands on them, verse 3, and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Nevertheless, even though that was the case, many of them which heard the word believed. You see that? Hold your place here and look really quick at 2 Timothy chapter 2. We see the same principle here. Verse 8, the Bible says, Remember that Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 2, 8, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer. Going back to Sunday school, even unto bonds. That's what we talk about in Sunday school. Notice the next phrase. But the word of God is not bound. Here's the thing we need to understand about the scripture. It doesn't matter if you're talking about somebody that knows God or somebody that doesn't know God. The Word of God by itself does things that none of us can do. Amen. If we, now, now, it is understood in verse number, back in our text, in verse number 4, howbeit many of them which, what's it say? Heard the Word. Now, listen, if you're a believer and you want, you want one of your family members or you want one of your friends or you have a, 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 a grandson or granddaughter, niece, nephew, son, daughter, whatever, mom, dad, aunt, and uncle, whatever, you want them to be saved. They must hear the Word of God. And you know what? It is your responsibility to tell them. It is not, as we said in Sunday school, it is not enough that you live an upright life. You are going to have to open your mouth. You're going to have to be bold enough and ask God for the grace enough to stick your neck out and tell them. It says, many of them which heard the word believed. There is no faith without the word of God first being heard. That's Romans 10, 17. That's basic doctrine. Faith, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the only, that's the only source of faith is God's word. So we have to tell people. We have to tell people about the Lord. And you know what? That's uncomfortable for me. Just like it's uncomfortable for you. And the closer, just as we saw in Sunday school, the closer the, that person is that you're wanting to tell about Jesus, the closer they are to you, the more difficult it is. But we have to tell them. There's no way they can believe unless we tell them. Well, they already know. Are you sure? What I found and what I'm convinced of more and more is that in Greenville, South Carolina, everybody knows the words and few people know what in the world they're talking about. You say gospel, they know the word, they're they familiar with the word, but they have no idea what it means. They don't have any idea how it relates. You say Christ died on the cross, 
They know the term, they know the fact, they know that, but how it relates to them makes no sense at all. That's just a fact. In fact, one time I asked a, a group of uh, Mormons uh, what the gospel was, and their answer was the teachings of Jesus Christ, which is not true. That is false. But again, familiarity with terminology sometimes is itself a barrier to someone's mind. It blinds their minds because they become so familiar, they don't think about it anymore. We have to tell them. You, you can't, you, we, we can't just say, oh, well, they, already, they know all that. Do they? Do they? Are you sure? I'm not asking if they know the words. I'm asking, do they know the gospel? Right? Do they know what the Lord says about how to have eternal life? They can't be saved unless they hear. Amen. But what I want you to know from verse 4, though, that word, how be it, once we tell them, we can't carry the burden around like it's our job to save them. Even in our absence, when we can't tell them, in this case, they're in prison, they're in jail. They can't speak anymore, but the word is still active. Amen. This is what, listen, this is what makes... This is what makes biblical Christianity different than everything else. Is that God is alive and His Word is alive. Right? Hebrews 4.12, right? The Word of God is alive. And then even though a person, after a person hears it, even though they might seek to dismiss it, and this is true of us as well as believers, even though they might seek to dismiss it, they can't just simply dismiss it because they cannot dismiss God. And God continues to work in them. And that's what happened here. These people believed even though the preachers are in jail. And a lot of them believed. The word of God is not bound. We should trust him with it. That's why we pray. After we tell people about Jesus, that's why we pray for them. We pray that God's word would do its work and bring forth fruit. Verse number five. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, you know, John the apostle, the disciple of Christ, is somehow related to this family. That's why at the, uh, at the, the, the trial, the mock trial of Christ, John was able to get in there and witness it because he was related to them. It's funny because one of the, this is not John the apostle here, this is one of the family of the high priest, but it's probably they share the name because of a common family member. And Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? What a fantastic opportunity. Amen. Boy, I hope if I ever get an opportunity like that, that I open my mouth. Amen. Right? And I don't shrink away in fear. I can't sit here and say that's what I would do. I knew one preacher who was, he was out preaching. Uh, he was preaching. They were, they were doing street evangelism at a parade. And who know, who, how many of you know who Janet Reno is? Janet Reno. Janet Reno was the, uh, the attorney general, I believe, at, at the, during the Clinton administration. And she was in the parade. Why, why, don't ask me why, but she was in the parade. And their church was out doing street evangelism and it just so happened, however it worked out, that the preacher ran into Janet Reno just at one moment. I want to ask you a question. If that was you, would you open your mouth? You know what he did? He gave her the gospel. Amen. He gave her the gospel. He told her about Jesus. 
I wonder if I would. I hope I would. I sure hope I would. Let me ask you something else. If, if these two apostles, common men by all accounts, Peter and John were not well-to-do, they were not well-connected, they were not well-educated. Now, that doesn't mean they were complete ignoramuses, but they were not, they were not people of letters. You know, they didn't have degrees and all that kind of thing. They were fishermen. They were tradesmen, okay? They were common people just like you and me. If they had went to the house of the high priest or to the, the palace of the high priest or wherever this council met, and they had knocked on the door and tried to get access because they wanted to tell the, this council about Jesus, do you think they would have been given access? No way. They would not have been able to get them, get, get in to tell them, tell them about Jesus. But behold, here they are. So what did the Lord do? The Lord used their trouble and their persecution to provide a platform to get their message out and to amplify the gospel. The Lord, listen now, the Lord used their trouble and persecution, the bad, to provide a platform so the gospel would get to these high ups, these, these higher ups. He put them in a position that they would have no way to get access to. And he used the persecution to do it, the trouble. They would have never had access to these, these people that were way above the people, had bodyguards and all that. You think of politicians these days, the presidents of the world, the vice presidents, the Elon Musks, the, the Joe Bidens. You know, the, these are, the, these are the, the people. This is what we're talking about here. We have no access to those people. But what the Lord did is He used the persecution to give them access because even those people, the Lord wanted them to hear the gospel face to face. So the Lord is getting His message to the rulers as well. You know, the Bible says, uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, that He wants us to pray for all men, right? But what does it say after that? for kings and for all those in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life with godliness and honesty. Just as a side note, when's the last time you prayed for the president, the vice president, the Supreme Court justices? When's the last time you've asked God to save our senators, Tim Scott, Lindsey Graham, if they aren't already saved? I know Tim Scott professes to be a believer in Christ. When's the last time you prayed for William Timmons, our local leaders, our governor, Henry McMaster. The Lord tells us, He commands us to pray for them. You know why? Who will have all men to be saved. That's why, right? And to come to the knowledge of the truth. <clears throat> Even the leaders. And so the Lord orchestrated this and definitely allowed this persecution to put those apostles right in the center of a circle of them. We, we studied on Wednesday night in Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. The Lord tells them. He, remember, He foretold them of the persecution. What did He say? He said, you will be brought before what? Synagogues. Before what? Governors. Before kings. Before councils. These are uppity people. These are the upper echelons, the 1%, the people, that the untouchables. Nobody, nobody has access to these people. And yet God says, 
In the persecution, you will be brought before these people. Why? Because God has a message for them. But I want to ask you a question. This is true of you too. You might not ever as a Christian uh, endure persecution in that way. I was telling in Sunday school, you know, in all likelihood, you and I will live our whole life in all likelihood. And I, I hope it's true. I don't want to be persecuted. Do you? Do you want to have your goods confiscated? Do you want to have your liberty taken away? Do you want to have your family separated? Do you want to spill blood for Jesus' sake? I sure hope you would. I sure hope I would. But I don't want that. I'm not seeking that out, right? In all likelihood, you're going to live and you're going to die and you're going to go to heaven without ever having experienced the, the worst part of that. But there's many other times that you are by things not outside of your control are put in positions where you touch people that otherwise you would not have access to. You know that? I think of my drill instructor in Marine Corps recruit training. Had anybody ever witnessed to him? But there I was. Think about when you get some terrible disease and we feel so much, I know I do, so much compassion on people that bear these diseases. But you know what? Those diseases force them to go into places like emergency rooms, doctor's offices. These, a lot of these doctors, we can't go into their neighborhoods. They live in wealthy neighborhoods where they, you, can't, you can't get access to them. And here you are, a child of God sitting right in front of them. Why? Because of your trouble. And the Lord uses that Amen. to put you right in front of somebody that needs the gospel that you might not have access to otherwise. The question I think to ask is, are we willing or rather are we content to endure trouble like these apostles did? If it's useful to the Lord for his purpose? That's a good question. Are we content to endure trouble for that reason? If you would look down at verse number eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Now, I just want to reiterate this. We've seen healing in chapter 3. We will see healing later in the book of Acts. We've already gone to great lengths to study the idea of the sign gifts. How many of you remember that? We studied the sign gifts. What were the purpose of these special gifts of healing and tongues and those things that God gave to the early church? What was the purpose? Anybody remember? It was to the Jews to do what? Somebody, I heard somebody say it. There, it. It was to validate and confirm the gospel message. So the emphasis was not upon the healing. The emphasis was not upon the miracle. The miracle was a means to another end, which was the goal, which was the gospel. Okay, and that's what you see here. This miracle is not the end. In fact, he says, if you want to know how this man is healed, I'm going to tell you how this man is healed. And he said, and he goes directly, pivots directly from the healing, 
which is the evidence and proof and token that Jesus, what he's about to say is true. And I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But he pivots from that directly into the gospel in verse 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. He's not talking about salvation of a body like with this lame man. He's talking about the salvation that all of us must receive, must be saved. You see this? So he's, he pivots from the healing to the gospel. The gospel is the main event. You know, and that's... You have, to understand, you have to understand, there's, there's so much theological confusion these days. There's so much emphasis on, on healing ministries and, and, and crusades and all that kind of stuff. That, but it's not about the gospel. The healing that existed at that point was not everybody in the temple that had, a, had an ailment was healed. No, he was healed to verify and confirm the most important message that can be told, which is this. Which is that when these healing things pass away... What you're left with is the gospel. The gospel, Jesus Christ and the gospel were the end. Now notice what he says in verse number 8 and 9, or verse 10 rather. Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Notice he says, of course, one of the main themes in the early part of the book of Acts is the resurrection of Christ. But let me ask you a question. Why does he bring this up at this moment talking in reference to the healing of this man? Listen now. If Jesus is dead, he has no power to heal. This is one thing we have to understand. Once a person dies, they have no power to do anything. They have no power to affect the things, the goings on in this world. In fact, Ecclesiastes said the dead know nothing at all. That's not, uh, that's not a reference to the fact that they are not conscious in, in the grave when they, when they go to heaven or hell. No, no, that's a reference to this earth under the sun, right? Ecclesiastes. We'll, we'll study that later sometime. But the fact is, once, they're, once, they're, once a person passes away and they die, they cannot affect any, any goings on in this world. And all this stuff you see on the TLC and ghosts and all that stuff, all of that start to finish is demonic. Every bit of it. The very fact they're peering into it and trying to communicate and interact with what they believe are these loved ones that have, that have passed away is itself an act of witchcraft. But all of that is it's not ancestors. We dealt with this in Cambodia's missionaries. Ancestor worship and 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 and. Uh, and Veneration and stuff is very common, and they believe ancestors are doing things in this life and causing things to happen. All that. None of that is true. Once a person dies there, they can no longer affect anything in this world. And that, that's also true of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus is dead, he has no power to do anything in this world. Peter's argument is then this. This lame man is healed because Jesus is alive. That's what he's saying whom God raised from the dead, even by him. Again, a dead man can't heal this man, but the one who is alive, doth this man stand here before you whole. You see the, the, the 
confirmation and verification of the resurrection that Jesus was. The resurrection is not just a narrative. The resurrection is the event by which Jesus became alive again, overcame death. And because he is alive, he has power to heal. That's what he's saying. Jesus himself is doing these mighty works because he is risen, because he is alive, because he is Lord of all. And I want to tell you something else. Now, we know God heals people. I believe God heals people. We know God spares people's lives, just like I was talking about with the fellow we talked to yesterday. But this, this healing is a little bit different because this is a, this is a healing that is the result of a, of, a, of a miracle, a miraculous healing that was done at the command of one of Christ's apostles. Jesus did it when Peter gave the command because, because the Lord was working through Peter. You understand that? This is a special thing. This is not a common everyday occurrence, even among what we might call miraculous this is, this is another notch, okay? That's what you have to understand about these miracles. Okay. You might not get healed. There's people here that would like to be healed. There's people here that have prayed for people to be healed in cases like this. But you know what? That might not happen. But you know what? Every act of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the earth can be attributed to his resurrection. Because Jesus, if he's dead, has no power at all. Now hear me, I'm going somewhere with this. The evidence of Christ's resurrection is twofold. Number one, the witnesses. We've already studied that in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2. There were witnesses of his resurrection. But the second evidence is in the lives of believers. You are an evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Now, I'm not stretching this. I'm not, I'm not being fanciful here. I'm not exaggerating. Let's look at a couple of verses. Look at 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the preaching, verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Listen to this. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Here's the thing. You think, you know, the, the, the council asked Peter and John, by what power did you do this, Right? What I'm saying to you is that in 2023, the power of God exists Amen. on this earth through Christ in his people. Amen. And it is not to be looked lightly upon because the power of God is manifested in you. First of all, in the fact that you have believed the gospel. The power of the gospel has already been manifest in you. Let's keep going. Look at Ephesians chapter 1.
Verse 19 says this, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us, uh, to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power? What power are we talking about? Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. This the power, listen, this is the power of God in each one of you that have believed in Christ. You say, well, I don't feel very powerful. It's there. Look at chapter 3. Verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power, look what it says, that worketh in us. That's resurrection power because Jesus is alive. Here, present, in and among Choice Hills Baptist Church because he is alive. What are you talking about? I'm not just saying stuff. Every one of you that have believed in Christ should have evidence, will have evidence of the power of God in your life that has done something in your life in a major way. Changing a sinner who loves sin, wants sin, who's in love with it, and changing the sinner's heart to where he hates sin and he doesn't want it and he loves the one he used to not hate and the, the one he used to avoid is an act of the power of God that is not to be looked lightly upon. You know, two days ago, let's see, today's the 6th. Two, day, two days ago on the 4th of August was my 24th spiritual birthday. And I want to tell you, from that day in 1999, when I received Christ and God saved me, a power worked in me that changed me. I, it, was not something, it was not something that I worked up or tried hard at. No, no, no. It was a, it was a work of God that happened in me. That is the only explanation. See, people look at me. I'm just using me as an example. I'm sure, I'm sure it's true of you. They look at me and they say, well, look, Adam changed and Adam started going to church and Adam did this and Adam did that. And I look at myself and I'm like, Adam didn't do anything. This was something that God worked yeah. in me. Yeah. And here's the thing. I just want to ask you, do you have evidence of the power of God in your life from the resurrection? You should. If you have been converted to Christ, there ought to be the power of God evident in your life in some way. Wherefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How? That doesn't mean you come to Sunday school and church and you learn how to live and and the the preacher checks up on you and makes sure you're being honest and and doing... No, 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 no. This This is God working in a man. God working in a woman. God changing a heart. God changing a life. God changing a lifestyle. Every, every believer should have evidence of the power of God. And that is the risen Christ working in us. While I was trying to research a little bit for this message, I came across an article, and part of the article I thought was interesting. He was talking about the doctrine of... uh, Exclusivism, which means basically in order to be saved, a person has to actually believe in Christ, trust in Christ. 
And he was talking about what led him to believe in Christ. And he said this. There were several other things. It, I mean, he was kind of uh, wonky a little bit, a little nerdy. And he, he talked about objective morality and things like that. But at the end, it's funny, the capstone, kind of the clincher. Listen to what it was. He says, but there was more. So he has all these intellectual, spiritual, um, apologetic arguments about why he was an atheist and became a believer. And all those things are fine and good, but what clinched it for him was this. He says this, but there was more. I was also confronted with the practical, lived reality of the gospel in my friends' lives. For the first time in my life, I developed deep, meaningful relationships with genuine Christians. And the testimony of their lives validated the Bible's testimony. You see, your life says, to people that don't believe, your life says, Jesus is alive. That's fantastic. That is, that's supernatural. In many ways, there was nothing extraordinary about them. In fact, their faith often seemed superficial to me. But even so, they showed me a radically different way of understanding morality. See that? What is that? That's a bunch of, that's a bunch of children of God with the power of God at, at work in their life. And it is so obvious to this guy, he says, something is different. Something is going on here that I've never, never come across before. That's Jesus resurrected. That's this lame man being healed, except now it's a sinner being healed. Verse 11. He pivots to the gospel. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is one of the clearest statements of what we might call the exclusivity of the gospel. I'll summarize it, and then we'll look at a couple points and we'll be done. It is Jesus Christ and no one else. It is Jesus Christ or you perish forever. You know what? This is not the only time in Scripture that God talks exclusively. To the, by that I mean He says something that excludes all others. This is not the only time. In Isaiah 45, the Bible says, There is but one God. He says, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no God. Amen. There is but one God, and that by, by default means all others are false. Amen. It is exclusive. And you know what? I'll just say this. Nature is not God. Amen. Nature was created by God. Nature is subject to God's power. People these days about all the stuff about macro and microevolution and, and all the strata and all the things they talk about with, uh, with geology and all these things and, and uh, astronomy and all this stuff. Look, the expanding universe, all this stuff. All this stuff, it comes back to one thing that basically what is believed is that this universe, universe has always existed. 
And it's just kind of ticking along, and nobody answers the question of where it came from. God created it directly by His power. There is, that one God is that God, the true God. All others are false. It doesn't matter if they're idols. It doesn't matter what people think they are. All others are false. Galatians chapter 1 tells us that there is but one gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. That is the plan of salvation. That is salvation right there. That's how you get saved. There are many other plans of salvation people talk about that are concocted by religions that include baptism, include prayers, include sacraments, include good works, includes the teaching, as I said earlier, the teachings of Jesus Christ, which essentially means you come to our church and do everything we tell you to do until you die, and just maybe you might get to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what God already did for you. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried and rose again. That's only one. Anything that's not that is heresy. Anything that's not that will take you to the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, There is but one way to the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no way to get to God, not while you're alive and not after you're dead. There is no way to get to God but through Jesus. First Timothy 2.5 says this, There is one, one God and one mediator. A mediator is a go-between. Is a, is a person that is between two parties. In this case, there is man and there is God. The mediator is in the middle. The mediator is the one that has the power and ability to connect with both, to bring the two together. It says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. You know what that means? No one else can bring you close to God. No one else can bridge the gap There's no other access to God, period. It doesn't matter how many prayers you pray. It doesn't matter how many times you repent, what you do for penance. It doesn't matter what your church or religion is. If you do not have Jesus in the middle, there is a huge chasm between you and God that cannot be crossed. Mary is not a mediator. Mary, no matter how many times people pray to Mary, she cannot hear, she cannot answer, and she cannot go to God on our behalf. That is alone Jesus' place. And lastly, as we see in this verse, one of the greatest verses probably in the Bible. I wonder if Peter knew when he was preaching that this verse was just going to echo through the ages. He just probably said it on a whim, you know. There is no other Savior. There is but one. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We must be saved. Listen, is Jesus or hellfire? Is Jesus or eternal damnation? Here's the thing. This church is not a savior. Your good works are not a savior. 
No religion is a savior. There is but one. You are not your savior. In Cambodia, they had a saying. They said, kluen tipang kluen. And that basically means self trusts in self. And so we try to tell them about the Savior, and they would say, oh, oh, I save myself. But the thing is, there's but one. They're not millions of little saviors that save themselves. No, there is one Savior. Jesus is the Savior, not ourselves. That's why we can't be saved by doing good works. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness, which, he, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He, what's it say? He saved us, Jesus. Are you trusting in that Savior? There is no other, none other at all. Let's pray.